Hello and welcome to Lighthouse in the Abyss. It's the 28th of July, and in commemoration of that fact, I'll be reading a little excerpt from uh, a book that I inherited from my grandmother called In Green Pastures. And it's a, a neat little book that um, has a, what would you say, What's it, its own subtitle is uh, Daily Readings for Every Day in the Year. And, you know, it's got... Um, well, I'll, I'll read you the first one for January 1st, which is The Lord Will Provide. Write deep in your heart this New Year's Day this word of sublime confidence, Jehovah Jireh. It tells you that you can trust God always, that no promise of his ever fails, that he doeth all things well, that out of all seeming loss and destruction of human hopes he brings blessing. You have not passed this way heretofore. There will be sorrows and joys, failures and successes, this year just as there were last year. You cannot forecast individual experiences. You cannot see a step before your feet. Yet Jehovah Jireh calls you to enter the new year with calm trust. It bids you put away all anxieties and forebodings. The Lord will provide. So that's the translation of Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. So anyway... This little book, which is like a little pocket-sized book, and I believe it's been reprinted, so you can actually acquire a copy if you'd like one, um, although not in the beautiful green felt that I have it in. Um, it's got an entry for every day of the year, and that being as it is, um, I will now read uh, July 28th, and hopefully I will remember now with every episode to uh, do a reading. Prayer and answer. True prayer is earnest, not tiring nor fainting. It takes every burden to God, the small and the large alike. It is submissive, referring all to the Father's will. Its answers may not come in the direct granting of the request we make, but may come instead in more grace and strength, enabling us to keep the burden and yet rejoice. Lying at our Father's feet in the time of our strong cryings and tears, we learn obedience and our sobbings end in praises, our struggles in acquiescence, our tears are dried, and we rise victorious, not getting our own way, but glad and happy and peaceful in God's way. Now it is a rather remarkable coincidence that that should happen to be the reading for today, when uh, in the last episode I made an appeal that we should be using the Lord's Prayer as the basis uh, of our prayers to God, which you know, I still maintain is correct, but, you know, I've, I've sort of had opportunity to think about it in the intervening time. And, you know, I, th I think what I've read there actually really kind of uh, bridges the gap between, you know, creative prayer that's, you know, praying in your own words and from your own heart versus, you know, uh, regurgitating the Lord's Prayer, which, I mean, you certainly... If you are doing the Lord's Prayer, you want to be doing it in such a way as you mean it, you feel it, you're really trying to, you know, get into the, the heart of its meaning. You certainly don't want to be in a position where you're just intoning hollow words, you know. And so if you're forced to make up your own words, then chances are you're going to try and speak from the heart. But then, you know, what this uh, piece is saying is, you know, well, okay, sure, speak from the heart. But, 
you know, extract the the marrow, the sort of the archetype, the basic pattern of the Lord's Prayer, which, and you'll, you will have noticed that it did say, you know, that uh, we're appealing to God's will. We're not trying to intervene with our own will. Um, you know, that to me is trying to establish a line of best fit between those two ideas. So, you know, it's like when you pray, do the Lord's Prayer, but do it in your own words that makes it individual to you and your circumstances. That's probably the best way of doing it. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance here if there's any noise. There's, you know, trucks going past, there's people going past that sets the dog off, uh, or both dogs off, I should say. Um, I'll do my best to try and cut and edit where possible when they're going ballistic. Um, but we'll just persevere here and see how we go. Um, I decided I'd talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments because they're pretty fascinating. Um, so, you know, if you turn your uh, hymn books to Exodus chapter 20, um, now these are, of course, I mean, this should really need no introduction at all. These are the laws as given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, after the Jews' exodus from Egypt. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay. So, you know, these Ten Commandments are certainly considered uh, the basis of Judeo-Christian morality. Um, you know, they are maintained, uh, you know, through into the Christian faith, um, you know, with 
without any real loss of resolution where we've sort of, you know, lost a lot of the um, Jewish restrictions. I mean, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find Christians uh, living according to Levitical law or, you know, Mosaic law, but certainly um, the Ten Commandments are, have carried through, you know, more or less. But I don't know. I think that there's a a bit of a misunderstanding as to what they necessarily mean, and I suppose I have my own interpretation of what they mean, um, and I'll sort of go through them a little bit now. Now, I haven't sort of planned any of this. I never planned these podcasts, so this will just be me sort of speaking out loud, so we'll see what happens. Or thinking out loud, I should say. So, the first, you shall have no other gods before me. And I think it's interesting that it's before. Because I think that's a real appeal to this notion that what we're dealing with is God most high. You know, that's the the highest possible uh, conception of God, the supreme being, as it were. You couldn't have anything before because, in a technical sense, that would have to be the supreme being because it's the one that preceded, the one that, you know, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's that to me is is what that is. It's not just saying you know, you'll have no other gods except me, or it's it's this appeal to that in the hierarchy of, you know, whatever divine uh, array of creatures there may be in terms of angels or gods with the little g or so on and so forth, that the god we're dealing with is, in a very technical sense, the top god, the one before everything. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of... Uh, this is the appeal to um, idolatry. And this this one, I think... You know, because we have a lot of uh, images. I mean, you know, you go into a, an art gallery and, you know, people try to render... Um, you know, pictures of the heavens, pictures of angels, pictures of, you know, uh, the pearly gates, so on and so forth. And it's like, well, you know, is, is all of that uh, a dastardly sin? Well, if you were reading this, um, you know, in in kind of like a, a very simple sense, you might think, well, that, that in itself, like you can't even, you know, it would not be right to even draw a stick figure and label it God. I mean, that's the sort of, you know, extreme... Uh, that certain brands of Islam take in terms of, um, you know, not drawing uh, pictures of Muhammad. But personally, I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, wrong with creating a, a painting that's like an impression. What the appeal is comes in the next line. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And that, I think, is the real thing. I mean, we've got to put this in its context of this is a time where you know i mean moses came down from mount sinai and saw they were all worshiping a bull statue and um you know all all of these sorts of things i mean that that you know historically i mean there used to be tribes of people that would carry around like you know carcasses or, or you know heads of like the skulls of um you know mammoths or bears and that would be their god and they would 
you know, worship these things and they would always, um, it's, the appeal is really just not to confuse an impression with the thing itself, you know, and I mean, we, we see this in the modern day because, you know, people who, uh, are more in a sort of agnostic atheist. They don't know a lot about uh, religion. They don't. They haven't thought deeply about you know what it is that it's actually saying. They go, I, I mean, I've had friends come up to me and say, oh, okay, so what is your conception of God? You know, is it an old old you know man living in the clouds? And it's like, no, obviously, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I mean, look, no offense if you're one of these people that thinks that God is legitimately an old white man living in the clouds because that that's very silly um but there's a reason why if you're an artist trying to render uh you know it, like trying to create an impression of god you know you would think okay well god is the ultimate wisdom you know so he knows Everything that is good, everything that is evil, you know, uh, he knows the right way for everything to be. And so how, how might you create an impression of that in a picture for other people to kind of, you know, contemplate? And, you know, so, well, people who are considered wise in our society are those who, you know, have lived a full life and... They've seen a lot of things, they've done a lot of things, and so they've, you know, uh, learnt many, many lessons over the course of their life. And so, naturally, you would depict the person as old. You know, we certainly used to, I mean, you look at all the statues of um, philosophers, Greek philosophers, and they're all old men with beards. You know, it's just a archetypal representation of what does wisdom look like? Or what does a benevolent father look like? I mean, you know, it's the, you know, the man at the head of the family who, you know, uh, is old and wise, you know. I mean, if we're talking about an eternal being that's wise beyond wise, well, that's like the oldest of possible things and the wisest of possible things. So you would, you know, use the most kind of, yeah, anyway, look. To me, the appeal is not to confuse an image like that with the thing itself. It's an impression. You know, don't don't bow down and, and worship a statue. You know, don't bow down and worship a painting. You know, these things are just impressions to try and get you thinking about the nature of what it is that you're contemplating, but they're not the actual thing themselves. You know, you need to, you know, divorce an impression from... The thing itself. This next one gets uh, misunderstood a lot as well. You know, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For ah, oh, actually, sorry. While while we're still on the previous one, the other thing, the reason why this big appeal of you know, like not not making images or carvings or so on. Um, is because, uh, what was I going to say here? Effectively, when you, you know, carve something out or you draw something, you put a box around it and you say, well, this is this, 
it's constraining. You know, if you if let's let's take our white man in the clouds, uh, old man in the clouds thing. You can't uh, constrain a supreme being like God into a human idea, because you know our own ideas are so limited. We're not supreme beings. We're not supreme thinkers, and by trying to put God in a box like that, I mean you've got to understand that we're we're the ones in the box. You know, so we've been. We're these beings of limitations and constraints. You know, we're in the box that God puts us in, not the other way around. You try and put God in a box, that's that's where the sin lies, you know. So while I personally think it's okay to try and create an impression for the means of trying to encourage spiritual thought and and higher thinking in others, you know, it's the, it's that double-edged sword of like don't, don't think that, you know, just because there's an impression that kind of goes, oh, it's a bit like this, and you go, oh, yeah, it is a bit like that. You know, it's it's way, always way beyond that because God is always way beyond us. That's the that's ultimately what it is. You can't constrain infinity. Okay, that's probably all I need to say on that one. Um, now, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay, so I was watching um, a video of Chuck Missler talking about this, and I think he's right in his interpretation, so I'm going to borrow his interpretation here. It's not just saying, you know, don't swear using God's name. Like, don't, you know... I mean, I personally try not to say god damn it it's um yeah that's a habit i'm trying to get myself out of just because i don't think that's a a good thing to appeal you know i think that the things that exist exist for a reason and they exist by god's will so therefore you know don't ask him to damn things um because that's sort of malicious and and against the idea of being and against the idea of the creation but I also don't think that this commandment is really talking about that. It's not saying don't swear, you know, saying Jesus Christ or God or whatever. Um, what it's really saying is if you're going to take on the name of God in your undertakings, you know, so you're going to go out and do the work of God, let's say, you know, like whether you're going out and preaching the gospel or whether you're going to do work for your uh, local church or you're going to go out and hand... Uh, Bibles out in the street or whatever, it's like, if you're going to take on that mantle, if you're going to say, you know, I'm, I'm about the work of God here, don't, don't do that in vain. And I think, you know, vain in this sense is not saying like, so when we think in vain, that that phrase means, well, you did it, but it didn't work out, you know, like, um, uh, what, geez, what's an example? Um, you know, you took a hundred golf balls, you tried to get a hole in one and all a hundred missed. So that effort was in vain because it didn't work out. No, that's, I don't think it's that. I think we're talking about vanity here. You know, it's saying, you know, don't, don't, uh, say you're about God's work 
and then make it all about yourself. You know, don't do God's work from a position of ego and, you know, as a means of sort of self-congratulation, you know, because you see people like this. You see people who, you know, like to sort of puff their chest out and go, oh, I'm, I'm holier than thou, I'm, you know, I'm great, I'm doing all the right things, la-di-da, and, and it's really, you know, far more about putting themselves in the spotlight than it is uh, doing things with a genuine sense of humility and godliness. And look, that's a tough one, because, you know, we all want to be a good boy or a good girl and get a pat on the head and recognition from, you know, our brothers and sisters saying, hey, like, you're doing a great job there, you know, but we have to be forever cautious that we're not, uh, you know, letting our our egos get sort of drunk on the attention and the praise because, you know, we, we know that that ego is very much, you know, when it's, um, and I mean, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm leaning into, uh, you know, Buddhist and Hindu territory here discussing ego because it's not really instantiated in Judeo-Christian um, like extant teachings. Uh, but, you know, in certainly in the way that I see things, um, you know, the ego is like, it's like the Lucifer sort of thing. And if you let your ego be your own personal top God, then that's very much that my will versus thy will thing. Whereas if you properly uh, subjugate your own ego underneath the higher principle of God's will, then you're, you know, acting correctly. And I think that's kind of, you know, I think that's what that commandment is really getting at. But, you know, just my opinion, you're under no obligation to believe anything I say. So, um... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, etc. This is a tricky one, because the Jews really take Sabbath seriously. And, um, you know, so for them, the Sabbath begins on uh, Friday night at sunset, and it carries through until... Uh, Saturday um, past sunset when uh, like when there are at least th I think it's three visible stars in the sky and that's the end of, of Sabbath on, on Saturday night so um, now somewhere along the way I think you know probably uh, reasonably early on first few hundred years of uh, Christianity possibly somewhere around the Nicene Council, who knows. Um, the Sabbath was changed to Sunday because that was, um, well, I mean, look, there's, I haven't read any particularly good sources on this. It's all just kind of the conjecture that you hear people talk about, but the idea was that it was changed so that, you know, as a means for encouraging more pagan followers who are already celebrating, uh, you know, the sun on Sunday, they would be able to do just kind of the old switcheroo, like, oh, we'll keep the same day since that's traditional, but we'll just, you know, we'll we'll change the God from the sun to um, Jehovah. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a tricky one. Um, certainly, 
I can see how a very strong case could be made. I mean, the sort of Seventh-day Adventist position, you know, they're one of a few denominations who have sort of eschewed the, you know, on Sunday thing and they've gone for the Saturday. Um, I'm not even... This is still one that I'm thinking about a lot and I've actually, you know, been trying to read different articles and different bits of scripture on Sabbath and what exactly it means for a Christian to keep the Sabbath because, you know, Jesus did make uh, appeals to us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, but he performed many of his works on the Sabbath. And, of course, there's, um, you know, the story where, uh, so I believe he heals, he either heals a blind man or a leper on the Sabbath, and, you know, the uh, Jewish priests are calling him out on it, and he kind of turns to him and goes, you know, if you lost one of your hundred sheep on the Sabbath, would you not, you know, go and find it, spend all day trying to find it and bring it back to the fold? You know, that's all I'm doing here. And then, you know, he later, there's the appeal that he's the Lord of the Sabbath because, um, you know, he uh, says, and I mean, again, I'm paraphrasing here, so, you know, please forgive me for butchering scripture. But uh, he's, he's saying that, you know, um, man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. There's a lot of different ways you could go. I'm not sure what the best interpretation, um, you know, from a Christian standpoint is for how we should be honouring the Sabbath, you know, whether the particular day matters or, you know, whether we need to hold true to the Jewish uh you know, kind of idea of, of what it means to keep the Sabbath. But I mean, they do, they do some stuff that just seems outrageous. I, I went and saw a, um, stand-up comedy set by, a um, a, a former ultra Orthodox ascetic Jew called Ari Shafir, who's a stand-up comedian. And he was sort of explaining a lot of the things that happened growing up, um, as a ultra Orthodox Jew. And he was saying that, you know, for a long time, um, Jews were allowed to use, uh, electricity, like electric light on the Sabbath until, you know, um, some rabbi asked an electrician or something how light bulbs work. And when he found out that it, uh, it involves ignition, it involves fire. And there'd been this previous, uh, rabbinical restriction against the use of candles and so on. So you couldn't use natural firelight. Um, when he found out that the light bulbs were using an, an ignition mechanic, uh, that then led to light bulbs no longer being able to use. So these poor Jews have to sit in the dark every Sabbath. Um, I, I really strongly suspect that uh, as, as Christians, we're probably safe if we ignore um, restrictions like that. I mean just in terms of my own interpretation, what I feel is correct in my heart is that if you're putting just, you know, one day in seven aside to think about and honor and reflect on and all those things, like you're just putting one side, one day a week aside as a minimum, to really dedicate uh, to God, 
but also just to to rest because you know resting is important i mean you know it's not it's definitely not healthy all the studies in the world have shown that it's not healthy to work every day um you know and so if the sabbath was created for men that is to say that you know that is a gift to us to take it easy and reflect and I mean, if if God can have a rest once a week, then certainly you can as well. And I know that I'm paraphrasing Jordan Peterson's, um, you know, interpretation of the Sabbath as well here, but it's one that I happen to uh, agree with. And certainly I'll refer you all to um, Jordan Peterson's biblical lecture series on the psycho uh, uh, psychological significance of the biblical stories because it is super fascinating. But a very, even though he's... Um, he's Christian himself, he is deliberately interpreting in a very kind of secular rationalist way, um, rather than a metaphysical way, despite his belief in the metaphysical. Um, and you know, that's, that's intentional clearly, but I have a tricky time with it because of the nature of my work sees me working on, you know, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, almost exclusively, and that's um, you know that's a, a tricky one for me. But then you know because I have this other free time, you know I have a lot of days that I can devote to rest and Bible study and so on and so forth. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one. I'd love to hear your comments. I actually do have a uh, Twitter for this um, account now for this this. Uh, podcast which is at bill darklighter so you know please uh weigh in with your thoughts and tell me all the miraculous ways in which i'm completely wrong because i'm sure i am pretty much all of the time but i'm doing my best so honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the lord your god is giving you it's a strange one, this one. Um, you know, and it, it in some respects refers back to um, the previous episode where, you know, I discussed the, the boy Jesus in um, the temple during Passover. You know, uh, after he's found, he, uh, you know, returns with his parents and is submissive to them and uh, his mother, you know, stores up all those treasures in her heart. There is this appeal, and it goes into even further appeal in Leviticus to submit to the will of our parents. Um, but it's a tricky one because certainly in the modern day, um, there are a lot of instances with people with not good situations with their parents uh, where submission to the will of them would not be advisable people who are for whatever reason in uh you know situations of abuse or situations where their parents are i mean look you know we've all heard of you know alcoholic abusive parents and absent parents and you know all sorts of things so it's a it's a tricky one that one and i think in some respects that's you know why we do abstract, um, you know, there's this, I mean, you know, God is the father, but then 
you know, there is uh, some mother worship, particularly in um, Catholicism, in the form of the appeals to, you know, Mother Mary of Christ, or uh, Mary, Mother of Christ, I should say, gosh. Um, you know, that there needs to be some form of, uh, you know, venerable father and mother that we can appeal to should uh, our own parents, for whatever reason, fall short of, uh, I don't know, fall short of honour? I'm not sure. Again, it's a tricky one. That's, I need to sort of think about that one myself, coming from a, a sort of a complicated family situation. It's, uh, it's definitely tricky. But, okay, next. You shall not murder. Now, this one, you know, used to be thou shalt not kill, and that was a um, a, a very... That's a, a huge technical difference between kill and murder. Um, yeah, because thou shalt not kill, I mean, that's, you know, from uh, where, you know, groups like the Quakers uh, derive their, you know, pacifism above all things. You know, a war comes around, they're all conscientious objectors. You know, they will not pick up arms against another person, no matter what the situation. And look, I can understand that. Um, but then, you know, it's tricky because if it's, you know, thou shalt not kill, and then, you know, you go on to read the rest of the Old Testament and, like, the Jews are waging war against lots of people and killing people all the time. So, you know, it's a bit of a strange one and, that, and quite often at God's behest. So, you know, seeing that, rendered as you shall not murder as it appears in my ESV makes a lot more sense um, because it is saying and I mean you know Jesus talked to the sol Roman soldiers all the time and you know he didn't say to them you know throw down your arms and you know let yourself get killed as a deserter by uh, you know the Roman legions he said you know like go about your jobs and don't complain about your wages and um, so there does seem to be some acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, a a standing nation state uh, requires an army for reasons of defense. Now, there's a footnote in my version here that says the Hebrew uh, word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. And I think that's pretty interesting as well. You know, uh, don't do stupid things that will kill people you know like i mean you could easily interpret you know uh you shall not murder nor cause death through carelessness or negligence as don't drive drunk you know uh if you're you know a uh a doctor you know don't perform surgery when uh, you're you know unwell or dizzy or you know you've been up for three days straight and so you can't concentrate because you might kill someone you know all those sorts of things so it's pretty fascinating i mean it, it almost seems as if the only killing that would be permitted by that is self-defense or uh within the bounds of i suppose a legally waged war you shall not commit adultery, fairly self-explanatory, don't cheat on your spouse, although Christ takes this one even further. In fact, he takes the previous one even further as well. Um, you know, so with adultery, he says, you know, if you uh, even look at 
you know, a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. And it's like, oh boy, good luck with that one. Uh, in our current Western culture that is, you know, sex obsessed and uses, uh, you know, sexual allure to sell products and, and, you know, get people to watch movies and all this sort of thing. I mean, that, gosh, we're, we're really being, uh, you know, programmed by our culture to see sex and venerate sex and hold sexual attractiveness up as one of the, you know, highest values. And so, you know, the notion that like you're sinning every time you look at someone with lust other than your spouse, obviously is adultery. It's like, woof, tough gig. And it's the same thing with the uh, you shall not murder if memory serves because I don't know where it is, but someone was talking about this in um, the Bible group I was at the other night and I couldn't remember reading this. So I, I meant to actually check it and see if it is genuinely in there because um, I don't recall it. But he said something like, you know, if you uh, speak words in anger to somebody, that that was akin to the same commandment, you know, that, you know, that, that violent words or angry intent was actually what's at the heart of the you shall not murder commandment. Um, anyway, you shall not steal. This is amazing. I mean, You've got right there, instantiated in the Ten Commandments, thousands of years old, the concept of uh, personal property. And that gets reiterated uh, in you shall not covet your neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, etc., etc., etc. We have the concept of private property instantiated right from the beginning. People are allowed to own stuff. You are not to take their stuff. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, this is, you know, pretty, pretty standard as well. I mean, it's basically saying, don't lie, and particularly, don't lie against other people. You know, what you see is what you see. You know, what you heard is what you heard. Put it out there, like, when, when you're called upon to report something, tell it true no matter what the consequences. And, yeah, well, and you shall not cover it. We already kind of covered that one. And, you know, so there you have it. There's your Ten Commandments. The last thing I find quite interesting, you know, so this is verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Gives us a little clue there. There was a thick darkness where God is. I think that's something that bears thinking about. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so we're at about 40 minutes here and I haven't given any thought to what a, a second sort of thing I might talk about would be. So I'm just having a bit of a flick through here and seeing if anything kind of jumps out at me. No, look, I'm kind of happy enough to leave it there for today. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I hope you all have a, a wonderful weekend. 
and uh, God bless. Peace out. Alright, I've decided I'm going to append a little note here about the, uh, you know, honour thy father and thy mother. There's concepts that kind of come out of more of the um, New Age or mystical forms of Christianity that, you know, there's this concept of the cosmic parents. And the cosmic parents are, you know, the, the archetypal father and the archetypal mother. And, you know, the archetypal father is something like the ordering principle that brings order out of chaos and the archetypal mother is the chaos that gives rise to new forms. And this is something that's um, instantiated in multiple forms of mythology. I mean, this goes as far back as we have records. So, so you know, you can go all the way back to Mesopotamia, Samaria, um, you know, all the way uh, through Egypt. You can look in the different, um, you know, thought forms of Greek mythology and Norse mythology and so on. And so, you know, if you look at uh, the Greek mythology, they had this idea of, you know, Father Sky, Uranos, and Mother Earth, Gaia. And even from a Christian standpoint, I don't think, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that this is what the commandment is saying, uh, but I think it's an interesting and potentially valid interpretation uh that, you know, honoring your father and your mother, you know, so we have an invisible father that is the will that has, uh, you know, put all of this together for us. And then we have our mother in the form of mother nature, the material martyr mother, uh, you know, which in some sense, you know, we're born from both, you know, because we are born of our you know, our actual mothers, but then, you know, the, the very stuff that our bodies are formed from is the material. We've come, you know, the life from the ground, the life from the earth that, you know, our uh, father caused to make pregnant, to give birth to new forms. And, you know, these these ideas, I mean, they're, they're all over. They're all throughout different spiritual systems all over the world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm particularly enamored with, uh, Native American Indian mythology and spirituality as well as, um, Egyptian and Norse. So over the course of this podcast, I will make, uh, occasionally appeals to ideas outside of Christianity that, you know, may help inform, uh, some of the things that we read. So, you know, the cosmic parents... You've got your father in the form of order and discipline and structure, and that's, you know, our, our Lord God. And then you've got, you know, our mother, mother nature, the world, the creation, that, that you know, which, that feminine principle which received the masculine seed and sprung up like a plant springs up, you know, um, and... Jewish mystics, you know, Jewish Kabbalists are, are really, you know, into this idea. They talk a lot about, um, I suppose, the the feminine principles or the feminine aspects of the creation and the creator. Um, 
because you know they certainly make the appeal that uh, angels and God himself have no set gender in terms of how we would think about it you know because we see things in terms of masculine and feminine but you know for a, a supreme being you would expect to see masculine and feminine both represented because there would have to be a wholeness a unity you know people are not whole but god is whole so um i thought i would just tack this on the end here as something to think about and hopefully nobody is uh too upset by it so all right have a good one sorry one more note so to on if if that was the way that we were going to go uh we would be honoring our father through uh gratitude for the creation itself but if we were honoring the mother being the the receptive the thing that is the creation then I believe that that would be an appeal to uh, respect the creation and not trash the world. And, sh you know, there's uh, this great quote uh, from Great Chief Seattle who made this appeal when the Native American Indians were selling their land uh, to the Americans. And he said, you know, words to the effect of uh, to destroy or bastardize or rape the creation is to heap contempt upon the creator. And that is something I very much believe. If God has fashioned this world uh, for us, then we have a duty as things operating in the creation to, you know, venerate and maintain and beautify the creation where possible. And that's, that's ultimately what I wanted to say about that. Okay, this time I'm signing off for real. Thanks again. Bye.